0: Good morning, Amber. How are you?
1: Good morning. I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I want to showcase how much I care about women, and I heard you're a woman.
1: <laughs> Hold on. i got to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I see how this is going to be. Continue.
0: <laughs> that cracked me up.
1: Well, yeah. I, you know, I, I, earlier in my career, I, I feel like it was, um, you know, you always feel happy to get a little bit of attention and um, uh over time you realize what is and is not necessarily positive attention and can kind of pay it forward.
0: <laughs> I don't really want to get into gender because it scares the, <laughs> scares the crap out of me. Um, so firstly, is the earth now flat?
1: Um, still, by all accounts, no. Still on a globe. Uh, but maybe if we all share in the collective delusion enough and just dream really hard, um, you know, it's like wind-moon, right? when wind, wind flat
0: Did you, uh, I haven't watched it yet. I saw it on the listing and I was like, can I really put myself through it?
1: I like that you're just obliquely referencing, like you're like subtweeting things live as though everyone else on the planet follows my Twitter stream. Yeah, It's
0: how I research. I basically do the last two weeks of tweets and we get something from that. Okay, listen, I'm not going to do your origin story because, uh. I've heard it before, and I think other people have, and it kind of gets a bit boring doing them all the time. I think we should get into some of the juicy things, but I think before we start, it's always good for me to understand the person I'm with's perspectives on certain things, so it would be really good to know your kind of perspective on the market at the moment, and where you are kind of positioned, what your thoughts are on kind of like the Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus all the other stuff.
1: Okay. Um I mean my perspective on the market is that there's lots of different markets and uh I think that uh we're headed for some difficult times globally um based on what's happening geopolitically worldwide uh and that has Trickle down effects or knock on effects to a lot of different markets. Um, certainly, probably wasn't helpful to be conflated with the kind of wind down of the bubble in the cryptocurrency markets over the last year. It has additional follow on impacts if you're trying to get funded or spin up new projects or you're an artist and you'd like to find a, a, a nice patron. Um, so, uh, you know, the, these things don't exist in a vacuum. Um, but in general, I'm happy that there's a bit of a slowdown. I'm not happy that people got hurt, um, but I am happy uh, for. From an institutional perspective I think that there was a big rush to put out products that might not have been really ready for prime time um, and that these institutions uh, really respond to client demand and there certainly has been a drop-off in client demand of late um, from say you know hedge funds looking for custody or something like that Uh, and so them having uh, some time um, is is good enterprises move slowly um, on the public markets I try to pay as little attention to that as possible to be honest uh, because what um, I try to spend more time thinking about and working on is more about uh, kind of the systemic interactions of this technology how we're um, deploying and orchestrating things what is the ar- you know architecture stack of the future look like uh, and you know maybe there are, there will certainly be micro payments and cryptocurrencies and tokens and various things in that but I think it's just one of many different changes that will happen to the um, landscape of the internet over the next decade.
0: Okay and can you just tell me a little bit about Clover? I've read some Mm -hmm. but can you tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing what you're working on and what the progress is?
1: Sure. Uh, so we are working on lots of really cool master plans that some I can and some I can't talk about, I guess. Okay. Um, so far. But, uh, in what's very concrete right now is, um, kind of a DevOps and orchestration, uh, layer around, uh, creating decentralized applications or applications which can be decentralized. Um, and there are some other stabs, uh, at a, the similar space kind of happening now, but it's, th- there's really not anything, um, there's certainly not anything dominant, but there's most of the, the solutions, um, that we see are focused on, oh, so you want to deploy the blockchain app <laughs> rather, and they really only play to people that have already made that decision in the first place. Um, and so I think there's a much wider developer pool of people that have, um, are like, I don't know what's happening over there in that blockchain land, but we don't really want to touch that. Uh, and so when you think when you think about um, what kind of applications people want to create, there's some that start by saying, we're building a dApp, and there's others that start by saying, I want to be able to challenge a centralized business model. And you start by deconstructing why it is that the current um, incumbent is so dominant. So Etsy or Patreon or something. Um, and then, uh, there are very smart people that are looking at myriad different ways to try to challenge that. And it's, it's not all the same architecture that runs on some coin. There's lots of different ways to go about that. And so facilitating that, um, in a way that's like super developer friendly. Um, but allows you to build user-friendly applications as well and thinks about decentralization not as something that arises from network topology but rather that um, is an ongoing process and different parts of this overall system that we have can have different degrees of power bottlenecks and simply understanding the trade-offs uh, between them um, and creating systems that are more accountable. Uh, so helping people build those things is what okay. we're working on. Um, I know that sounds very I, people at which point someone will probably say, but enterprise blockchain, <laughs> cause that's what I was kind of known for, I guess. And, um, you know, this same framework is completely able to deploy your permission network to your enterprise thing in your Kubernetes cluster. Like, you can have the same thing. Um, and I th- and think it's important to bridge that gap. Uh, we don't really want to just have consumer-to-consumer apps on one side and business-to-business stuff on another side and never the twain shall meet. That's part of the problems that have arisen in the kind of status quo power imbalance that we have uh, in the current market structures. Um, and so helping businesses, uh, understand why it is that they would want to use something that in some way decentralizes some part of their business. Um, Why would you want to do that? Well, it's not because they feel altruistic. It's going to be because they can solve a problem that they couldn't before. Right now, a lot of that looks like not so much, let me help you move this post-trade workflow uh, and do like a lift and shift of existing infrastructure. Uh, I think that's been done. But a lot more about how are you thinking about your data strategy for the next 10 years And one of the best things that has come out of all this blockchain hype has been just an a crazy inflow of research in time and in money into fundamentals of cryptography and in making things that um, have been around for a long time, like some you know, secret sharing or Schnorr signatures or whatever, um, but to make these things more usable within dominant systems. So they have been around, but they're not really used. Uh, and so um, secure multi-party compute, for example. Being able to kind of bring these principles into people's everyday business processes allows them to solve things in ways where previously you just needed these silos and intermediaries.
0: Right. Okay. I definitely want to get into that. But, you know, as we spoke beforehand, sometimes there's a, there's a juicy subject to get into that other people aren't covering. And I really enjoyed your article for Quartz.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: So, and actually, obviously the timing's quite relevant as we spoke about. So I, I'm kind of interested in this surveillance capitalism, and I've written about it myself once, but more with regards to because my background is the advertising industry. And I think before we start, something that's quite interesting is I read a Tim May quote and actually put it on Twitter this morning, just out of interest to see what the feedback would be. I don't know if you've heard it, but this was his last article for Coindesk. And he said, I can't speak for what Satoshi intended but I sure don't think it involved Bitcoin exchanges that have draconian rules about KYC, AML, passports, freezers on accounts, and laws about reporting suspicious activity to the local secret police. There's a real possibility that all the noise about governance, regulation, and blockchain will effectively create a surveillance state, a dossier society. Oh, it's a bit like, whoa.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a reason I'm on the board of the Zcash Foundation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's, uh, it, it's important. Um to pay attention to. I, I think there. It, it's, it's interesting to see on both sides of the fence, which sounds perhaps too binary, but uh, in the, the world of permission ledgers and some of these projects, um, for example, I worked with the Monetary Authority of Singapore on one of their projects, um, but these uh, these kind of unified ledger systems all trickle up to a single route which has visibility to a single entity, and they're not really being designed to provide privacy uh, from that central actor. Um, They could, but they're not. (laughs) Uh, Similarly, a lot of the the other corporate pilots that are more um, not necessarily about creating representations of digital currency, but are more about data sharing or workflow processing, etc., there are ways you could design them to facilitate something like take back your data, Uh, but they're not necessarily being designed that way because there's not an incentive to do so other than to put it in a press headline right now. And then you have this other side of the fence where people are saying, "Well, the the privacy should be baked in out here in Bitcoin land." But it turns out that once it, it operates inside this larger ecosystem, that the uh, the edges are very complicated, uh, and we're seeing this, the exact same kind of—I um, uh, I mean, I, I guess it is literally surveillance—but uh, the same kind of compliance and requirements creeping in there as you'd see elsewhere as always the the crux of the argument is choice and uh you could take your Bitcoin and do something differently with it. You can run it over Tor. (laughs) You can self custody. Um, You can do all those things. Uh, It's just that the barrier to entry for most people is pretty high right now. And the risk that you take on may not outweigh the benefit uh, that that you get. And every person has to create their own personal threat model and risk model to decide what the right solution is for them.
0: Right. So the freedoms that bitcoin have provided us have also given us new dangers
1: with great power comes great responsibility
0: yes <laughs> um, but also this is this is this reaches outside of crypto this is we're talking about the silicon valley behemoths as mm-hmm. well who operate similar models to say the nsa so i think what would be good is to unpack that can you just for people who don't fully understand but explain what surveillance capitalism is to you and the background to the article and why you wrote it and I'll share it out in the show notes but I think it'd be good just to give that background
1: yeah it's (laughs) it's an interesting uh I mean, I guess it's interesting for me. I don't know if it's interesting for anyone else. But for for me, this goes back a couple years at least in this term, which I first heard from Errol Balkin, who leads Indie, I-N-D dot I-E, which creates things, um, ethical software and has some really cool projects, but talks a lot about the incompatibility of most models of... Public, publicly traded companies, or even venture capital, being essentially in conflict with creating things that are, are good for the common good, and uh, so I had initially kind of heard it from that, but I guess he kind of got it from Shoshana Zuboff, who's a professor at Harvard, uh, who recently, um, just last month, I think it was finally published her book of the same name. So um, when you know we were out there kind of saying uh, this to people, everyone said, "Wow, this is this cool word we've never heard before, this neat phrase." But now it's entering really this common, the, the common lex which is it's it's wild to kind of see um see a, a new word catch fire in um in the collective consciousness because it, it really just so accurately nails what it is that we've ended up with systemically here right like it's that we have businesses that derive their business value from an ever-increasing ingestion of data and that um it, uh, leaving machine learning aside for a second, but even just to this point, if you're creating a company now, let alone the the behemoths like Google or Facebook or such, but if you are creating a company, you are immediately faced with the need to deliver metrics about how great that company is doing. What is your traction? Who are your users? What do they want? What is your product market fit? Um, And in order to answer those questions, you need to collect information on them. And then, you know, maybe we could make sure that our, our buttons are placed in the right place on our screen if we just had a, a recording of every user session. And there's third-party companies that will do that for you and then say that they've anonymized the sessions, right? So there's this tension between knowing that really we don't want to go after, you know, Bob Jones. Like, we're not trying to go after this specific person. We just want to understand you as a person, But in so doing, um, you inadvertently give up information across a number of platforms, even if they're kind of uh, anonymized, when cross-referenced are very trivial to de-anonymize, especially when you get into uh, recurring patterns, like, you know, I'm a teacher, I go to school, the same school, back and forth every day, there's very few people that are going to have the same kind of patterns as I do. So we end up with businesses that rely on this increasing ingestion of data and an ethos as machine learning came into it of just more data will always be better. We don't know why yet, but we just need more of it. And it gets um, like, let's throw some kind of fuzzy math at it and we're, we're getting actionable results and we'll put it on our PowerPoint and make some, you know, business business. And uh Unfortunately, um, as you have a variety of data breaches or you have uh, subpoenas or national security letters or um, just mismanagement uh, or insider threat, there's any number of ways that the, this data can be misused uh, in ways that, that hurt People, Uh, I think what people are waking up to now, though, is that, um, as we saw with kind of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, is that that was that was not misuse. That was not a data breach. That was business operating as designed. It's simply that it was not designed to help or to, you know, be good for users. It was designed to be good for intermediary businesses have said for years you know if you're not paying for it you are the product but I think people are now starting to understand that a little more intrinsically
0: but the Cambridge Analytica and it was a scandal mm-hmm. is, yeah it's pretty sinister what happened yet I don't feel like there was a big wave of people who left Facebook because of it and I think you know we've known for years that Facebook don't have the most ethical policies yet people still don't seem to why don't I mean do you look into why people don't care
1: Absolutely. Enough. Every every couple of years, there's some sort of, um, you know, privacy Pearl Harbor. Like, in, and everybody says, we're going to be outraged and we're going to leave Facebook and you post about it on Facebook. Uh, and then, you know, a couple people leave, but most people don't. And this goes back to the, um, it's interesting actually that she said apathy because my, I'm, I'm, t- I'm speaking at, at South by Southwest next week and the title of my presentation is Money, Apathy, Cryptography, The Fates of Internet Societies. And that's exactly um, that 's exactly it you know if we you look back at um, well meaning cypherpunks twenty years ago who were saying we need to win hearts and minds and people need to wake up to this reality and some people have maybe there 's a bit more of a tide behind it now, but i I just fundamentally don't think that um, changing everyone in the world's minds to understand and come to the same worldview is a thing that seems like it's gonna happen. <laughs> so that's why uh, when you know, we're designing things at, at Clover, not to shill or plug that, but like the, the way that we think through architecture design is about um, how do you deliver background wins on security and privacy in ways that people don't have to necessarily care about it. So if you're a developer, maybe it saves you a couple hours to not have to worry about about setting up let's encrypt certificates but if as a user then those these applications, you know, we've, we've gotten a lot more of the internet to run over um, SSL through Let's Encrypt. It's done amazing work. But then, you know, you can design applications that can, say, take advantage of libraries that deliver various sorts of, of uh, privacy features. Where they're easier to use, you're more likely to incorporate them. There's just story after story, this graveyard of wonderful technologies um, that people don't use because uh, smart people would like to spend more time doing R&D on the, the things that that they're smart about, than making them really understandable to other people. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, relatively well tested. That it's this, there's this constant cycle that um, when you don't understand something, you think it's very hard. And then you study it, and then you think, I was stupid to not have understood this before. Everyone else must already know this. But that's not, that's not true. As we develop this very deep knowledge in specific domains, um, in order to get that knowledge uh, and the, the benefits of what you've learned to escape that domain, you have to have both relationships cross domains to understand how other people think, but um, you have to think about what the, the blind spots are and how to deliver into those gaps of other people that what you know is relatively unique.
0: So I read an article by, I think it was Matthew Green, who wrote about Chrome, when Chrome updated, so it was um, integrated with my phone and my desktop. And I was kind of like, okay, that's a bit too much. So just as an exercise, I went through removing all my Google accounts, removing all my Google data, switching off all my tracking on my phone. And then I remember I was going out to, I think I was in San Francisco, and I actually found it a bit of a pain not having some of the more kind of like advanced data, knowing where I was, knowing a bit about me. So I ended up switching some of it back on. Yeah. How do we find a balance whereby we get convenience without the kind of sinister side?
1: That's exactly what people are working on now with these kind of D-Web slash Web3 sorts of applications. Um, A single architecture for which, as I mentioned, I do not think we have hit on yet. But the ability to uh, not have such a stark trade-off between um, privacy or security and convenience, we're just now starting to be able to thread that needle. And uh, I think you're right. The end user cares about you know, being able to find on the map where you're going, and you're going to give up your location data if that's the only way to figure out where you're going. But we need to understand the entire kind of supply chain of of data and apps and things that get um, to that point where you are required to give up that data. It doesn't have to be architected that way, but it is right now. Now, bootstrapping systems that allow us to share decentralized information is super complicated. The idea of decentralized Google and, and things um, is hard. But, you know, people, people are I, – I think that we'll see more early applications that don't necessarily try to tackle – That stuff. Those are very hard problems. But you're seeing things like, could we do something like Google Sheets or Google Docs, but in a way where you don't need a centralized coordinator that has insight and censorship um, rights over everything that's in my Google Doc. Like, honestly, do I care if I'm planning somebody's birthday party over some Google Sheet, whether or not Google puts one thing before another thing? No. But, you know, there's a reason that enterprises will not use Google Sheets, especially for financial services. It's very important who did what before what, and that they are the people that say um, who did what before what. So, um, you know, in designing solutions that can meet some complex enterprise challenges, there's actually really great opportunities to deliver that to consumer market where um, it would be very, very complex to bootstrap a consumer network because there's not the will necessarily, but if it becomes more delightful or more fun... I think, um, Brewster Kell from the Internet Archive, it was, it was cool. I was researching, um, for the talk he gave at Crypto Springs, all of the various ways that people describe the decentralized web. Because it's been around like, you know, for, forever, this idea of the de- decentralized web. We're actually re decentralizing the web now. But, um, so Brewster Kell from the Internet Archive had mentioned that one of the characteristics of successful applications are simply they have to be fun. And you know that's not an appeal to your better philosophical nature. Mm-hmm. It's just fu- it's just fun, and that I think that's where we need to kind of focus.
0: So, do you envisage it's almost like privacy is going to become something like we like a sector like we've had clean tech and crypto? It, it will become something that's, that's competitive and invested in by funds. Ironically, maybe in Silicon Valley. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think. Investment in things that look like privacy tech in the pitch deck is definitely happening. Consumer adoption of applications because they pitch privacy is very small instead again, you want to focus on what is it that i 'm getting as a as a user I think scuttlebutt is a good example of this in that uh, if you watch some of their videos about what does the user get when they use uh, this this application which um, is kind of like I guess a, a cross between a Twitter, Facebook, Messenger, kind of, it's a social thing, um, you know, but but you discover people locally um, from your local, local network, and then uh, you have much more granular control over how people see you, what kind of names you use, and everything in, in the ways that they present it is over the course of a relationship, of how how would this benefit the, the human connections as you talk to someone over the internet, and your relationship grows, and then maybe it falls off, and how do you manage that? Uh, it was just a delightful way, I thought, that they presented it. When behind the scenes, what they've done is like a heavyweight amount of of engineering to kind of make this kind of peer-to-peer stuff um, palatable. So props to them.
0: Amazing. So you talked about earlier the, the sinister side of data collection and the harms that can be done. What are the harms that we're not really aware of? Because, you know, I talked to you before about, you know, people don't really care about Facebook having their data. They don't care enough. There's apathy. You know, I switch my Google things back on. What are the sinister things happening beyond this just being natural competition for them?
1: Um, it's a tough one. Um, I mean, there there are the the real threats, and there are the landscape of potential threats. Right. the the things that are happening right now uh, probably include domestic surveillance, which may or may not be constitutional. I guess. <laughs> uh, but we're also looking at this from a perspective of. You know, or I am looking at that when I say that, from uh, living in the West, if you look at Internet freedoms around the world, and there, there was a good list I just saw the other day of uh, kind of ranked from least free down, uh, but in countries like uh, Saudi Arabia or Russia and China, um, there are already demonstrable social impacts to the way that data is collected and, and used. Uh, and we certainly have that um, in America as well, but it's a little more uh, subtle, I guess, in that a lot of our control happens to just come through making everybody want to consume things. <laughs> um, you know, it's a little less explicit, uh, but that also is dependent on how I mentioned, you know, what the, the current threat versus a potential future threat is. So depending on how you think authoritarianism might evolve in uh, previously or currently democratic countries, um, you need to plan for some worst scenarios right it is uh, incredibly difficult to backtrack or change these things later uh, and I think you know we see that even in like the the silly crypto communities where people start they say we're going to start centralized and then give away this power and it's it's complicated it's it's hard to understand when you know once you have the power it's very difficult to to let go there's not a lot of historical precedents where it's worked out
0: it's funny because you mentioned crypto obviously it's been an interesting week with what's happened at Coinbase. I'm, I'm still not fully into the details of it. I've read a lot about what's happened. What's your kind of broad opinion on what happened with Coinbase and Neutrino?
1: Well, I think that... Um... As I guess Motherboard quoted me as saying, I think that how how Coinbase chooses to implement compliance and controls will impact a lot of people simply because Coinbase has opened so many accounts. Right now, uh, they are kind of what would be considered systemically important within that small corner of the universe of, of people that have opened cryptocurrency accounts. And uh so their their design choices matter um and who they have build these things matter because people bring their philosophies and their um their ethos and what they have designed before and the solutions that worked um and the shortcuts that they've taken. And people bring all of that uh to every new project that they have. It's called learning, right? So it it certainly was uh concerning to see people that uh have previously worked on not surveillance capitalism, but like just literal surveillance technology. Uh, for nation-states be involved in, in, that, that kind of, uh, in, in that kind of decision.
0: Yeah, I kind of sometimes criticize Coinbase and then sometimes have a certain amount of sympathy for them in that they've done an awful lot for onboarding people into the world of crypto, and certainly Bitcoin, um, but seem to have made a number of missteps along the way. But now they've grown into this kind of the biggest exchange, I think they're kind of becoming more like a fintech company. They're naturally the first place that regulators are going to look, mm-hmm. and I guess that they are going to have the pressures of investment from Silicon Valley, pressures from regulators that they almost have to—they have to create something that complies, else. What else? <laughs> we'll There's no Plan B.
1: Absolutely, I do not envy Brian Armstrong right now. I mean. <laughs> uh it it is uh it's a little bit like the kind of facebook story right like they were moving fast and breaking things and being the outsiders and then um all of a sudden there was a little more scrutiny and you, you, as you grow, uh, and in, in order to keep growing, um, which not only investors demand, but the kind of business model demands, you have to figure out how to make it work. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, shapeshift and some of the other stories recently, it's, it's, it's a struggle to figure out how to deliver these products in a regulated world. Uh, and if you are a U.S. citizen who can only open an account via, some channels somebody needs to figure out how to provide that uh, so I guess the counter argument is everybody should simply figure out how to custody all their own stuff and only use DEXs and we should all kind of put it all um, you know, underground and live in our bunkers but that's the exact same argument that has failed to work for the, the cypherpunk communities as, as I was mentioning most people um, will not pursue that uh, product so I understand why they're, they need to work on it but it's, you know, they're out front of the, being the first kind of in the world to figure this, this stuff out. So I, I try not to talk uh, as much about my uh, time at J.P. Morgan anymore for both kind of, you know, legal and personal reasons <laughs> since I'm working on other things now. But I remember um, when it was that uh, Chase said you could no longer send uh, fund a Coinbase account from your credit card. And the kind of general public outrage about that. Um, when really what was happening was that you cannot use a credit card to fund any brokerage account. It's considered like margin lending. It's, it's money you don't have. You're investing money you don't have.
0: Irresponsible.
1: Uh, Well, you know, that, well, that's a moral judgment, but it Mm -hmm. is definitely money you don't have, which you probably usually, you would usually get charged for in a different way than credit card APR. It would be a cash advance or something. You can still use your debit card, but the general outrage was, you know, people don't like crypto. I, whenever I say crypto like that, I mean like hashtag crypto. Otherwise, I mean cryptography. But uh, what was actually happening was that uh, Coinbase was finally being recognized as more like a traditional broker-dealer. And so there is a process of figuring out how to lay the existing rules onto this new world and where it fits and where it doesn't fit. Um, and in, in at the time, obviously, um, we there was a lot of... Uh, public outcry about jamie Dimon's ongoing comments about bitcoin which we do not need to discuss but you know from a point of consumer protection saying this looks risky at a time when the market was was very high can you imagine the story that would have happened if instead they were like this looks great everybody all in and then you had this kind of market downturn so the 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 perception of consumer protection if not necessarily always the ability to execute on consumer protection is something that's important to uh regulated institutions and it's important that they deliver that message
0: by the way i I don't see the jp morgan fit with you i don't (laughs) why do you say that (laughs) i just don't see it like did did you go to work dressed the same as you do now were you the anarchist within jp morgan (laughs)
1: Are you saying I'm dressed like an anarchist just because I'm wearing a Sex Pistols well, well, shirt? No no,
0: no, no, no. Come on, <laughs> look. You've got s- several colors in your hair. You know, you're like me. You're covered in tattoos. You know, you know, can a You know, suit a lot.
1: covers a lot of things. I, uh, you know, I, I know you didn't want to talk about my background, I guess, but uh, I was interested in political science and economics. That was what I studied in school. Um, I did a lot of computer science stuff more on, on my own, but I always wanted to understand kind of why the world worked and why it is yeah. the way that it is. And I... I, I I understand that a lot of people go straight into trying to, you know, fight the power. But I, uh, ha- had a slightly more nuanced approach of wanting to kind of understand and be close to said power. <laughs> and so, uh, it- it was an amazing opportunity. I mean, yeah. J.P. Morgan was not the first financial organization I worked at. I worked at Old Lane, which was Vikram Pandit's hedge fund. Um, he went on to be the CEO of, of Citi. I was working at Old Lane during um, the, the Lehman collapse and coming out of uh, that entire thing. I was working on rearchitecting their systems, which the back end was a mess. It's amazing you, you're doing like quant trading of 10,000 trades a second on the, the front end, and on the back end you can barely reconcile anything. So, kind of the, just this like long history of, of wanting to be uh, close to where the decisions were actually made, so that I could just simply understand them. Um, and I think that's because, uh, as I, <laughs> the joke in, when I was in school was, you know, if you if you want to make money, study finance. If you want to understand why other people are making money, study economics. And so I was never a banker. I was always a technologist. But. Uh, it was a complete simple stroke of luck, and, and that this zeitgeist happened, where I happened to be on a team doing machine learning things, which happened to sit next to the team that was starting to look at blockchain things, and um, did, there, did you
0: ever debate Bitcoin with Jamie Jimmy Diamond?
1: I can neither confirm nor deny this question, <laughs> um, and to have the. Uh, opportunity where they said, you know, we need to explain this to extremely senior level people Mm -hmm. and you can't just walk in and be like, here's proof of work. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I mean, I remember reading the Bitcoin white paper in like 2011 in a cafe on the Lower East Side because like all my friends wouldn't shut up about it. And, uh, you know, it was just this kind of thing. It wasn't, it wasn't this big deal that we needed to tweet about all the time. And so simply having that, that kind of, at that point, what is considered a long memory, even though it's only four years, um, but the longer memory of what information security and what computer science and what computer history is like, going back decades, has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to kind of create this this new world, you can't just come at it from a consultant handing you a PowerPoint and saying, you know, you're in charge of the blockchain now. Uh, and that's why a lot of these institutions have struggled. So it was an amazing opportunity and it was total luck. But I guess 99% of luck is putting yourself in that position where I was already there.
0: Yeah. I'm not, I don't really believe in luck. <laughs> Just back to Coinbase and actually more looking at things like chain analysis. I always get this kind of like creepy feeling about these companies. Yet whenever I read about them, what they're doing, is kind of like, Muh, we're stopping terrorists and criminals and dark markets. What should we be concerned about with regards to surveillance in the world of crypto?
1: All technology is dual use. I mean, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Okay. Um, And uh, it's important, uh, I think, to try to kind of stop bad stuff. The challenge is us collectively as a society deciding what is bad stuff. Um, there's stuff most people agree on and is pretty codified in international sanctions lists. And if you're going to be doing business, you comply with it or you don't do business there. But it trickles all the way down to whether or not you believe that sex workers should be able to have bank accounts. So, understanding, uh, you know, It's really up to them as a business to choose how they wield those tools and what their philosophy is. Figuring out how to use technology that can be dual-purpose is not a new problem. It's something that um, we've struggled with going back to, say, the the crypto wars of the 90s when the public key encryption that we all use today and is instrumental to, say, you know even Bitcoin signing, was considered a dual-use munition under export controls in the U.S., um, and uh, it was it 's a long process to engage with and, and change these kinds of things there 's still arguments about whether or not we should be backdooring strong cryptography in the u s Australia recently uh, implemented a law that kind of undermines that. Um, it affects whether or not you can do business and build products that will run in places that have requirements to distribute golden keys um, to controlling authorities um, and so this is kind of a, a well trodden landscape, um, security companies that, that do pen tests or discover um, bugs and vulnerabilities uh, have had long discussions about what a coordinated or, quote-unquote, responsible disclosure should look like. Um, and uh, so we can learn a lot um, from, from what has already uh, come before us, I think.
0: So I tried to think about it myself, and, and I was like, okay, I think something like chain analysis is a natural conclusion to having uh, this kind of pseudo private technology that the government doesn't know much about and i was like okay all right so they want to try and stop you know criminals and terrorists whatever but and i was thinking well why should i really care you know why should i care and then i was thinking it's known that the my entry into crypto was buying bitcoin to buy a treatment for my mother when she was dying we Mm. wanted to get her cannabis all illegal in the uk totally illegal and it's kind of this gray area where it's like okay here's the law and I abide by most of the law. But this is when my mother's dying. I don't give a fuck, right? I'm going to buy a treatment. I don't care if I'm breaking the law. And then I'm like, I don't want to be tracked by a company doing this. And then re- receives like, have some I don't know, police knocking on my door saying, you've been buying drugs online with Bitcoin. Because that to me is kind of bullshit. So that's the kind of era I'm like, okay, and now I don't want to be tracked. Therefore, how important do you think things like... Well, you obviously think Zcash is important, but how important, therefore, do you think privacy in Bitcoin is and Monero? And do you have any kind of like personal views on wider privacy currencies?
1: Um, absolutely. I mean, I think your example is a great one. Um, I try to come up with as many kind of more flippant examples as I can, something like, you know, if you bought an engagement ring, would you want it automatically posted to your Facebook page? No. There's, there no. are lots of reasons that people should uh, want to have some sense semblance of privacy, uh, and they're not all about nefarious goods. There's been plenty written about just because, uh, you know, um, just because you want privacy does not mean that you're doing something wrong. It's been explained many, many times. But uh, I I do think that um, privacy is is a fundamental right, but also having... Society that kind of functions as an important right, um, or an important goal. So figuring out how to, uh, walk between those two spaces is exactly what this, some of this work like what Zcash is doing, uh, the Zcash Foundation is, is doing. I think, yeah, privacy is super important in systems like Bitcoin and Monero and others. Um, and I'm really excited. I think the, the way that Monero has been able to adapt, uh, with adding, uh, I2P and some other, uh, some other, uh, few Feature additions has been super cool. It's it's all awesome um, research, and it's it's a cool functioning system. And their wallets are infinitely more usable than is, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's why people use it. Again, people don't use it be- partially because they don't really understand differences in privacy models, but if you just put two things up and you say privacy coin A, privacy coin B, and one has, a, a, like, a usable experience, and the other looks like Windows 98, and you can't even send shielded transactions, and you can send a shielded transaction to Coinbase, but you can never get your money back. Like, those are problems. So there's a lot to... Um, work on. I don't think Zcash is in any way perfect. But uh, what's exciting about it is the the real um the, the privacy work being done at the protocol layer. Privacy is not uh it's not a binary state. Um it's something that can exist uh again kind of up the stack. Zcash's privacy happens cryptographically at that lowest layer um with the ZK SNARKs. But then on top of that you can have something like a mixed network that would obscure the metadata around your Zcash transactions. And, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things can be applied, uh, in different mix and match ways across different networks to end up in kind of different outcomes. But the normal human is just never going to really understand the intricacies of that. I mean, I, I try and I still feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely complicated.
0: (laughs) The other thing that kind of scares the crap out of me a little bit is one of my favorite interviews I did was with, do you know, Alex Gladstein? Oh, Human yeah, Rights Human
1: Rights Foundation. Yeah, I presented with him at the Oslo Freedom Forum. He's, oh, right. he's awesome. Okay. Yeah.
0: Are you going this year?
1: Um, Maybe. I lo- I'm, I'm. My family's Norwegian, so oh, I, really? I, that was my first time to get to Oslo. It was, like, it was Oslo Innovation Week, yeah.
0: Okay, so he's invited me. Um, I've never been to Oslo. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to go. it. I'm actually meeting up with him tonight in Chicago, actually, oh, cool. to talk to him. I'm, I find the guy fascinating, and, you know, now I've got beyond my own personal ambitions of getting rich from Bitcoin, which isn't going to happen. I, the more time I spend with him, the more I realize what Bitcoin can do under authoritarian regimes and, and other other technologies. He's talked to me about this. So all this kind of merged to me this week where I was thinking, right, Alex Gladstein explains to me these amazing things that crypto technologies and cryptocurrencies can do for people in authoritarian regimes. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Hmm. Now we have these companies analyzing the blockchains and employing potentially hackers who've supported people on authoritarian regimes and we've kind of got this big kind of messy battle between like trying to give freedom and then people trying to attack that freedom and i'm just like what the fuck
1: yeah i mean i was really hoping when all this happened we'd be like all wearing cyberpunk coats but um yeah there's not enough leather in society for how terrifying it really is i guess yeah i mean when I was a kid, I loved nothing more than The X-Files Um and, of course, movies like Hackers. Um, and uh, it was really, you know, I got my first 9,600 baud modem and was, like, hanging out on the BBSs, talking to people at universities who didn't know I was uh, a, a little girl, which is a weird thing to say about the Internet these days, but at the time was very freeing to be anonymous on the Internet. Um, and uh, this was the world that... um people foresaw this is what we we saw coming um, was this kind of land of cyberspace it's what uh, it's what um, John Perry Barlow talked about in the the kind of declaration of independence of cyberspace that we thought that there would be this democratic revolution um, through cyberspace but it turns out that it actually simply reinforces and re-implements existing nation state politics in a more nebulous way um, that is almost like a Cold War War, but it's not so much a cold war as an invisible war to most people. But this has been going on for, for decades. Um, I'm one of my um, dear friends, Chris Wysopel, uh, who was in a, a group called The Loft back, back in the day. Um, they got to testify to Congress in the mid-90s about how the Internet was fundamentally broken um, and uh, like BGP attacks and things which are still completely viable, <laughs> by the way. Um, but they they were there uh, giving this message, and uh, it was not really hurt. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get to testify to Congress this year, to the House Agricultural Committee, um, when they were trying to figure out, you know, cash, security, commodity, what do we do with cryptocurrencies? And... I felt like um I had a I had a couple options. I could simply go and opine on the questions that they asked, but I feel like it's uh it's a relatively um short term view of, of the challenges and and really my responsibility there was to speak to the wider audience and the future of saying, Hey, we told you like we told you this was going to happen and that um, if we weren't planning for this quote-unquote internet of value to be systemically important infrastructure not just to economics but to politics and society in the same way that the internet has become like we're 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 focusing on the wrong problem we're not really fighting yesterday's war but like we're definitely um off kind of rearranging deck chairs on the titanic somewhere while other countries are um, absolutely uh getting ahead of us so it's a challenge
0: so there's one final thing I wanted to talk to you about just because I've seen you comment on it and I'm a bit like – so I used to work in the web development industry. I used to have my own agency. We, I, cool. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, making websites for people to make money and not really making much yourself. But um, I went through Web 1, Web 2, right? And for me, there wasn't like this time where Web 2 happened and we all went, here's Web 2. It was more of a retrospective of things, that technologies that came in place. Um, and I'm not a technologist. I was just a salesman.
1: Do you remember when Web 3 was supposed to be the semantic web in 2009?
0: Yes. It's been talked about a lot. And then I've seen... So I read Multicoin, Carl Samani's view on Web 3. And I looked at the stack. And I've got to be honest, I'm not really technical. And I think sometimes maybe that's why some people listen to my podcast, because I just ask the dumb questions. But I looked at it and I went, huh? Really? Like, I just... I don't buy that Web3, I don't think anyone can define what Web3 is. I think Web3 will be whatever people tend to pick up and use. That's my first point. And secondly, I just don't buy this entire decentralized web architecture. And it feels like sometimes people are defining Web3 to justify their own business. How do you feel about that?
1: Um, I think that is a good summation of the current state of play. Um, I think it's, it's a little complicated. As I mentioned earlier, I was kind of researching these different uh, views of what people thought the decentralized web or Web3 was, precisely for that reason. Because um, you know, me being apparently old, uh, you know, I remember the, when Web3 was supposed to be the semantic web and Tim Berners-Lee kind of saying, this is how it's all going to be. And we're all going to mark up all of our websites. Um, and it didn't really go anywhere. Like it, it, it ended up being, well, you need to mark up your post this way if you want the, the card to display properly in Facebook. But that's not exactly the same as having this kind of shared global ontology, uh, that was supposed to make things, um, universally kind of of connected like hyperlinks but better um and if we look at why that didn't really work out um partially it's because asking just regular web developers or somebody who wants to write a blog to understand a shared global ontology and then mark up their things accordingly sounds complicated um but uh also because we saw like how easy it was to gamify seo by just throwing the right keywords you know like google completely ignores the keywords uh field at this point it's it makes a lot more sense um as natural language processing uh, became more um, prevalent or even its kind of analogs that were a little clunkier, it's a lot better to parse the actual content that you see and then uh, to make a call about what that content is. And Google got really, really good at that. Um, And because of that, they're able to show you the thing that you want kind of almost before you even know that you want it because they know that the map is not the territory and the markup doesn't matter, that what's there on the site matters. And we're starting to see that now push in To video as well, which was always harder to do previously. And so, um, you know, machine learning kind of killed the semantic web uh, in the same way that um, the business models and the ad tech also contributed to it, not being able to kind of monetize this stuff, um, the loss of RSS and XMPP, like these things kind of hurt the idea of open adversarial interoperability where like, um, you know, when uh, I, I don't know if you remember like friend feed and stuff, but you were, we were supposed to be able to kind of aggregate and have these open um, communities or. Uh, trillion where you could pull together all of your different chats, uh, into like pigeon or, you know, this is all stuff that the kids are probably like, what are these words? Um, but you know, this was back when, when the web uh, had a lot more kind of open connectivity. Um, and the business models ended up, uh, um, pressuring people to move into these kinds of silos. And now when we talk about decentralized web. uh, Fundamentally, I think it should be about figuring out how to crack open those silos. And it does require something like adversarial interoperability. We have to figure out in the absence of those companies being incentivized or regulatorily forced to um, give you access, uh, how are we going to uh, let people take their own data and or create uh, alternative systems. So when you look at kind of architecture diagrams like that, and we we have one um, from Clover that I lovingly called the Webernext stack uh, because I literally was like, I don't know, like, is this Web3? Is it D-Web? Like, is this, what is this? I don't know. But um, what was important uh, in creating it was like, can we map something like BitTorrent onto this? Will it function with this stack that we have based on what things are considered to be kind of like, you have to make a choice in order to have a, like, a functioning application? application. You need to make a choice at a networking layer. You need to make a choice um, at at various uh, various components of the stack, but you don't have to do it in one way. And uh, can you map something like BitTorrent here? Can you map something like uh, a Polkadot-driven application or Substrate? Can you map something like an enterprise Ethereum use case? Can you map something like just these um, permissioned post-trade workflows? Um, Or can you map something that really is Like, I am just an artist, and I'm a musician, and I have my website, and I run a BTC pay server, and so I just want to accept payments in a way that circumvents the rest of the rails, but, like, you know, maybe I run a Wix website, so someone else has my hosting. You know, as we were talking about, like, where you choose to decentralize, um, it's... I think decentralization is a terrible word <laughs> where you choose to kind of, um, take back some, some power from, uh, from the rest of the powers that be right now requires that you take on an, uh, an undue amount of control, um, over, uh, over it. So like, let's say you wanted to add this kind of BTC pay server. Like you literally have to spin this up yourself. And I know a lot of musicians. I don't know a lot of them that know a lot about infrastructure. Um, and, uh, what would, what would, probably have a tough time with that so the more that we can kind of componentize these these types of things the the um reusability that something like stripe provided mm-hmm. you know was huge um so many of these dApps right now look like cold fusion like cgi bin like stuff from the the 90s um and i mean more like the enterprise side i guess um like they just it, it's it's a wreck and it's not maintainable. It's not extensible. It doesn't plug into anybody's, like, CICD pipeline. Like, it's all just like we've forgotten everything we learned about development over the last 30 years and are just so enamored with the blockchain that we got to make it work. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's what I like about the Webernext. And I think... Um, what I'd like to do is empower people when you, when you say choice, like you need to have a choice at each of these layers. That doesn't mean you modularly mix and match random crap together, that's not how computing works, but it does mean that you need to understand what the problem is that you're solving and you need to choose a tool that solves that specific problem, not be just um, stuck into this tightly vertically integrated platform solution that to your point really is driving a specific ethos, business model, coin valuation, whatever.
0: So Web3 is kind of a myth right now.
1: Yeah, but people's desire to um, take control from some of the the platforms that are um, right now, <laughs> sometimes people are getting kicked off of some of these platforms, right? Um, and, you know, there's maybe good reasons people are getting kicked off and maybe bad reasons that people are getting kicked off. Um, but there are certainly displaced populations. So how is this kind of diaspora gonna find a new solution did you know that you could actually like run your own website i know it's shocking um like the files they're just inside the computer and then that you like they're accessible on the internet like i know it's a joke but um most people uh today that um are not hyper technical have never been in charge of their own infrastructure and probably have no desire to be so again um some of these new tools Previously, I was talking about some of the cool new cryptography tools that let us do new things, but now we're talking about stuff like Wasm that allow you to kind of have this kind of web operating system uh, in, in completely new ways, uh, or kind of the shift towards serverless architecture, which right now really just means somebody else's server, but doesn't have to. Um, these kinds of shifts, and these, these are really like much larger scale paradigm shifts that will affect the entire web, regardless of what is happening, like with the price of Bitcoin. Um, and so I think that they they play together. And there's going to be really cool things that happen at the intersection of them. Um, But yeah, I'm kind of focusing a little bit more on that kind of technology side than the cryptocurrency side at the moment.
0: Well, that's cool, because that sounds kind of interesting. To me, that sounds like a future where maybe we start to break down the power of the large behemoths, the large uh, Silicon Valley companies, and it becomes a lot easier for people to create their own businesses, take control of their data, take control of their own experience on the internet, uh, but hope that'll obviously have to come from people making tools that's easier for everyone. But that sounds kind of cool. I like that world.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds really cool. I think you know the the problem that um, an artist who can't accept you know sub one dollar payments on Patreon anymore because of their payment model or because their art is considered too controversial, um, the problem that they're trying to solve is not that they want to take back their data. It's that they need to connect with the people that uh, get their art. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I don't think we're going to be able to sell them on taking back their data, but they might end up with having their data as a result anyway um, and then now you've got a different problem which is that people are like what do i do with this because they didn't really ask for it um, and so there's an entire different kind of uh class of what could be intermediaries or additional businesses um, that can help people manage those things maybe hope hopefully in a more consensual way than they are now um, but yeah i mean if you imagine that you've got how many different terms of service in eulahs and whatnot have we signed um, I can't even imagine it would be a full-time job to simply manage the risk or monetization of your data. Yeah. Maybe that's a new job that somebody has, but like it shouldn't be everybody's job. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, listen, I've got one final closing question. So we seem to have more tools available now and more tools coming that allow people to create their own businesses, create a bit of freedom for themselves. Yet We also seem to have more tools that are giving nefarious parties ways to track us or to do sinister things so like we've got this kind of battle are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about the future big
1: question um i mean i'm never really optimistic uh i think that um i think that the the battle is worth fighting um I think that if most people kind of knew what they were up against, they'd know that in most senses we've already lost. Um, But that doesn't mean that civilization is over. You know, I like to try to not so much think about it as um, this is a war and we're on different sides uh, as much as like um, these are all neighborhoods and we all kind of live in them. And we are trying to choose how to govern them. And I guess in some places, the homeowners associations are a little more authoritarian and murderous than in others. Um, but uh, I think we get into trouble if we start thinking of, of um, life and humanity as, as simply a battleground. Um, so I, I try to stay, uh, stay hopeful or if nothing else, design so that people that are more hopeful than I am can um, make their better ideas work.
0: That's very cool. Thank you so much, Amber. This was amazing. Can you just tell people how to stay in touch with you, who you want to hear from, who you don't want to hear from?
1: <laughs> um, you can stay in touch with me. The easiest place is probably Twitter, uh, which where I'm Amber Balday. Um, my DMs are open. Uh, that does not mean that I can respond to everyone that DMs me because there's certainly a, a lot of trash fires in there. Um, who do I want to hear from? Um, people that for whom this kind of resonates I guess uh who do I not want to hear from um people that just like slide into my dms and are just like hi and then three days later like whatever bitch <laughs> so that would be probably not oh I should I could give I see your eyes are like "What?" well you but know
0: what like um so my DMs that's the school friendly version well so my dms are open and I mean I get the odd weird thing like you know or yeah begging letters or people um, asking me to shit or something but certainly there is a difference between the kind of th- weird things that a girl will get and a boy will get that's certainly like from all my friends i speak to on twitter and all the people i've got to know in the crypto community who suddenly got 15 20 30 40, followers they're saying they get some really weird shit yeah.
1: and abusive st- oh yeah i mean we could have a fun like hate reading amber's tweets sometime i used to print them out and put them behind my desk with like the profile icon covered with a troll face um and you know i'm i'm fueled by rage so i think it's great bring it i've been on the internet longer than you have
0: (laughs) this was great thank you amber
1: thanks for having me